If you would turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Exodus, we are once again in Exodus chapter 20, and once again we have a very short text as we continue our exposition together of the Ten Commandments. We have now reached the Seventh Commandment, and our text is in verse 14 of Exodus 20. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. May God bless the reading of his brief but powerful word. Let's pray for his blessing upon us. Lord, we ask this evening that you would make your word to pierce our hearts. That especially, O oh Lord, as we live in a time and a culture that denies your word, that flouts your word, that rebels against your word, that we would, as your people, seek to follow after your word, for you have given us the words of life. Help us, O oh Lord, to understand who we are in Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. So we come once again this evening to one of the great ten words, the ten commandments given by the Lord our God to Israel on Mount Sinai. And we deal with now the seventh commandment, which is, again, one of the commandments in what is often called the second table of the commandments. The first table, the first four commandments having to deal with man's relationship with God. The second table, commandments 5 through 10, dealing with man's relationship with his fellow man. And so as we come here this evening, I trust that you have been seeing as we have gone commandment by commandment that there is a competing worldview that comes in the scriptures to that which we find all around us in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and in our land. Our culture seeks to rebel against God. It doesn't seek to honor God. It doesn't desire to keep any of the commandments. It wants to serve other gods. It wants to make images to bow down and worship to them. It wants to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. It sees no value in keeping holy the Lord's day. It does not want to honor their father or their mother. And we, as we saw last time we were together, we have become a culture of death in which we do not honor life. And we constantly not only murder, but we celebrate murder. But I think this evening as we come to the seventh commandment, we have a commandment in which our culture most finds itself at odds. Our culture has a worldview that is completely antithetical to God's word here. We are in the midst of a culture that has gone verifiably insane over issues of sexuality and gender. 
Brothers and sisters, I'm not that old. I'm 51. And if you would have told me in my lifetime, I would have seen such a sea change in which people aren't even sure who are men and who are women. If you would have told me I wouldn't have to be careful about when to expose my teenager to things of private sexuality, but I should be concerned about four and five-year-olds being exposed to this in the public square, I would have thought you were crazy. But that's the culture in which we live. But I want to encourage you tonight, because there is a sense in which the more the culture rebels against God's word, the greater the difference is to be seen in believers who honor God's word. We can stand for the truth of God's word and we stand out. We have a truth for others to see. And so we have these two competing worldviews. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as members of his church and his family, it is incumbent upon us not just to endeavor to keep his commands by the grace of the Holy Spirit, but to declare that his commands are good and just, true and holy. That's what I want to do this evening very briefly. The first place I would like to begin is with the basics of the commandment. What does this commandment encompass? What is the sum of this commandment? Well, I think at first glance we can see that this commandment forbids marital infidelity. That's how we would describe adultery. It is a very terse command. You've noticed that each of our texts the past few times we have been together are very short. You could memorize our text that we are considering together in the time it takes me to read it. They're so short. But that doesn't mean, once again, that this commandment is unimportant because it's short and to the point. We see throughout the scriptures that this commandment is uh, explained and, and encompassed and emphasized. In just one instance, in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, we see that there is a severe punishment for violating this command. That when a man commits adultery against his wife, both the man and the one that he commits adultery with are to be put to death. A severe penalty. And again, I think this shows the contrast with our culture. Because in our culture, when a man commits adultery, it's an occasion for a magazine article to praise and to exonerate and to speak highly of. So this commandment forbids marital infidelity. And within that, it also includes divorce. The scriptures tell us that God hates divorce and that Moses allowed for a bill of divorce only because of the hardness of their heart. But our Lord Jesus Christ says it was not so from the beginning. God has designed marriage to be a permanent estate for life between one man and one woman. Do you catch that? I have to actually say that in America in 2021. Because we have jurisdictions seeking to legalize marriage between threesomes, foursomes, 
fivesomes. But God has given to us the parameters of marriage, one man, one woman, for life. And so this commandment forbids violating God's established order. This commandment is not just about sex. It is about marriage. For God is the one who established marriage. We might put it this way. God performed the first wedding ceremony in the Garden of Eden. He said that it was not good that Adam should be alone. And he gave Adam, Eve, a partner, one to come alongside him, to help him. And so God established marriage as good and as a part of his will for humanity. Now, this is important for us as Christians to understand because I fear that part of the reason in the culture that we have lost the argument about marriage, and in the culture, beloved, we have lost it. We lost this argument because we tended to defend marriage as a bedrock of society, as being best for children, as being a way for the community to move forward. And all of those things are true, but that's not why we defend marriage. We defend marriage because God established it. Because he said it was good. And no matter what our society says, they cannot undo the truth of God. They can rest it in unrighteousness. They can suppress it in unrighteousness, Paul tells us in the first chapters of Romans. But they cannot undo the truth. God has spoken his truth to us. And all of the other violations of the marital covenant and of the relationship between one man and one woman are subsumed under this commandment. I hope that you have seen as we have gone commandment by commandment that we are to take these commandments as broadly as possible. And so we're not to narrow them so that we can say that we keep them. But rather, when we say that we are not to commit adultery, we are to say we are to be faithful in our marriages. We are to be honest in our marriages. We are to be encouraging in our marriages. We are to do much more than avoid physical acts of adultery. We are to honor our spouse, to lift them up, to encourage them, to be faithful to them in thought, word, and deed. Because this commandment is broad in its scope. In reality, it is a heart issue, not a body issue. Jesus told us that lust begins in the heart. He reminded us that when we look on someone who is other than our spouse with lust in our heart, we have already violated this commandment. I think if Jesus hadn't made that pointed argument, that would never have come into our minds. We would think we would be free to look and to glance, to hope and to think, and that this would not affect our marriages at all. And yet we know from every study that has been done throughout the decades that this is what destroys marriages. A glance leads to more, which leads to unfaithfulness. It's not simply having a mistress or an adulterer, 
No, it's what we watch on the internet. It's what we watch on TV. It's the way we look at people as they go by. Jesus reminds us that lust begins in the heart. And it is true that all sin begins in the heart. But especially, I think, this sin begins here. And so we are called to address our hearts. This commandment reminds us that this sin is indicative, not just of marital infidelity, but even false teachers. I find it very interesting that in 2 Peter chapter 2, as Peter is talking about the false teachers who are destroying the church, teaching perverse things, do you know how he describes them? He says they have eyes full of adultery. Reminding us that to be unfaithful to our spouse leads inevitably to unfaithfulness to God and to his people. And so this is not something that we can ignore. It is a symptom of greater problems in our society and in the church. This is why, for example, studies show that the divorce rate is not significantly different among church members and society at large. Because we fail to understand the basics of this commandment. The second thing I want us to look at is the heart of the commandment. To go beyond the basic. We should assume the basic. We should apply the basics. But we should go deeper to the heart of the matter. And what this commandment encourages us to is to model personal holiness. This is a commandment that tells us that we are to be holy in our interactions with others. We can think first about chastity. Now there's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? There's a word you won't hear much in our society today. And if you do, it is a mocking label that is put upon someone. Oh, what are you? Are you chaste? Which, of course, translated means you're uncool, uncouth. And not very smart. That's what our society means. But rather, this commandment teaches us that chastity is to be the default for us. It's not even to be something that we need to strive to, to be better Christians, to be sort of super Christians. No, that is to be the default for the believer. It's not to be some kind of special category. Because chastity is the foundation of the family. Therefore, the foundation of all of society. And so we should cultivate that in our lives. A personal holiness in our actions and interactions, especially in our interactions with people of the opposite sex. Some of you may recall that there is an old rule called the Billy Graham rule. And... Billy Graham had a rule in which he would never be alone with a woman who was not his wife. And when Billy Graham traveled as much as he did and was hosted by as many people as he was, this was not always the easiest thing to maintain. But he constantly maintained it so that he would have integrity, so that no one could accuse him of being unfaithful. Now, you may recall there was a more modern application of the Billy Graham rule when our previous vice president announced 
that he lived his life by that same rule, for the honor of his wife and for his own integrity. Do you remember how our society attacked him for that? They called him a misogynist, that he was anti-woman, that he was not modern and with the times, that he was just plain flat out wrong. You see how far we've come in just a few decades? And yet at the same time, we must realize how often stories come across our computers and across our newspapers of people who decide that that rule is not important and they will have lunch or dinner or a vacation or anything else with someone of the opposite sex. And then it's as if we're to be surprised that their marriage blows up. No. We're to cultivate personal holiness in our lives. I think this commandment also tells us that we are to cultivate modesty. And I think this is a principle that we should operate with all of the commandments, but let me make it clear here. You should not be living your life to find out how close you can get to breaking the commandment without actually breaking it. That should not be your goal. And yet I fear that is often the goal of people in America today. Professing Christians. I'm not going to ask you to do this. I don't do it myself. I've seen things on occasion or talked to others. But do not go to the Instagram accounts of professing Christians with Bible verses in their bios. They're immodest to an extreme. If the Bible verse weren't in the bio, you would never know that they were a Christian by the way they dress, or rather, undress. They don't cultivate modesty. We should seek to honor God. Now, that doesn't mean that we should come up with a set of rules and regulations. Thy skirt shall be so many inches in length. Thy shirt should be so many inches in length. Because... We know that we can't set up parameters to make sure that we are constantly in obedience to this command. But that doesn't mean that we throw this command out the window. It means we must work hard to cultivate a spirit and a heart of modesty in our lives. Not to cause others to sin with temptation, but also to give honor and glory to God. To show that we desire to live by his law, to give him the glory. Well, it's not just a model of personal holiness that this commandment drives us to. It also drives us to love for one's spouse. Because if you think about it, if divorce is not an option, the only option you have in a troubled marriage is to work on your marriage. Far too often in our culture, people will say, well, we got divorced because we couldn't just find a way to make it work. For the believer, the discussion could be, we can't find a way to not make it work. Because we want to honor God. It doesn't mean it will be easy. A Christian marriage is not a life filled with no arguments and no disagreements. Believe me, there are plenty of yelling that goes on in Christian marriages. There's plenty of anger and disagreement 
and disheartenment in Christian marriages. But the difference is, in a Christian marriage, we know that it's not an option to break up the marriage. We seek to honor the Lord and His Word. Not just so that we keep this commandment, but we know God has given this commandment for our good. And so we want our own good, and so we follow God's law because we know that God knows what is best for us. So we have to love our spouse. And the model, therefore, for marriage is that of Jesus Christ and the church. An eternal love. An eternal relationship. A relationship of love, cherishing, and honor. We look to the way that the Lord Jesus Christ loves His church and the way that the church loves and serves the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be the model for our marriages. Self-sacrifice, love, putting the other first. This, of course, contrasts with our current culture. If there is a phrase that encapsulates our current culture, it is the wicked statement found, ironically, in almost every Disney movie. Follow your heart. The Bible tells you that your heart is deceitfully wicked, and you cannot know it. Beloved, do not follow your heart. It will lead you to sin and destruction and sadness and chaos. Follow God's word. God's word is true. Just because it feels right doesn't mean it is right. And we can see the families, the marriages, the relationships that are littered throughout our society with damaged lives and finances and homes and children everywhere to be seen because we followed our heart. There is no accountability in our current culture. Everything is an excuse. If we have a difficult time at work, if we've reached middle age and we think our life hasn't turned out how we wanted it to, that we can use that as an excuse to violate God's law, to, to break up our families, to cast aside the wife of our youth or the husband of our youth. This is the culture in which we live. It is a culture of selfishness. And what the seventh commandment is ultimately all about is selflessness. Love. Self-sacrifice. That brings us to a third thing I'd like to consider. Not just the heart of the commandment, but the soul of the commandment. We might ask ourselves, why is God so concerned about this. This commandment is a bit different than the fifth commandment or the sixth or even the eighth. In the ancient Near East, adultery was a crime against a person, against your spouse. In the Bible and in Israel, it was a crime against God. Do you see that? In Genesis chapter 39, we have Joseph when he is fleeing the advances of Potiphar's wife, Joseph says, He is not gr greater in this house than I am. 
nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness, now catch this, and sin against God? That's Joseph's primary concern. And then, of course, there is David in that great psalm of repentance in Psalm 51, after David's adultery that we will get to eventually in 2 Samuel, where David says, Against you, Lord, now catch this, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that God will judge adultery. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. You see, God cares about this because it is a sin against Him, against His holiness, against His word against his institution of marriage, against the way that he has created mankind, male and female. One would think that God understands gender. He invented it. And he created man, male and female, two completely different Hebrew words, complementary. That's not to denigrate either the man or the woman. God says that they are to be together a team, if you will. But they are distinct because he has created them to be distinct. And to dishonor that creation is to dishonor God. Marriage is also a covenantal ordinance. And in that, it reminds us of God's covenant dealings with his people. So, for example, in Psalm 50, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. What God's saying in this psalm is, is that your views on adultery reflect your views of me and my covenant with you. Marriage is not a contract. You know, it seems like in today's day and age, the greatest thing we have a concern about with marriage is who gets the stuff when it breaks up. And we look at it as a contract. Like if I had contracted to sell you apples and I broke the contract and we had to figure out who gets what portion of the apples or the money. That's how we view marriage today in America in 2021. But God says it's so much more than that. It's a covenant. It's a relationship, and it reflects God's covenant with his people. And that's why when God speaks of his people's abandonment of him, he calls it adultery. It's spiritual adultery. This is what the entire book of Hosea is all about. That God told Hosea to marry an adulteress, an unfaithful wife, to be a living, breathing, walking picture of God's relationship with Israel. It's what we see in the prophets in general. The prophets 
tell Israel to stop going after other gods. The prophets use very vivid language that makes us uncomfortable. They talk about Israel whoring after other gods, being unfaithful, trying to find satisfaction and life where there is none outside of the Lord our God. Why does the scripture speak of adultery in terms of the spiritual relationship between God and his people. I think it's because marriage is a picture of covenantal faithfulness. As we said earlier, it is a picture of Jesus Christ's relationship with the church. It's not the only picture of the church. Paul gives us a picture of the church as the body. But it is a vivid reminder of God's relationship with his people. And so God is so concerned about this. I want you to think about this. He takes pains to make sure that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is born within a marriage, within a family. And that's not a simple matter. We know from the Gospels that Joseph is flummoxed at first. He doesn't understand what's going on here because he knows He's not the father of Mary's child. And Mary is an upstanding, godly young woman. He doesn't understand what's going on here. And so God has to reach out to Joseph through an angel and to tell him what is going on. Now, to us, that's a part of a Christmas story that we know well and good. But to Joseph, that is earth shattering. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And yet God goes to the lengths of disclosing his divine plan to Joseph so that marriage would be honored in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. I also think it's important for us to remember that marriage is a picture of gospel forgiveness. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise hands, but I can be assured that if I were to ask you, who among you have been hurt worst in your life by your spouse more than any other person? I think all of us would raise our hands. Because our spouse is the one who knows us best. Whom we're most intimate with. Whom we have the most to deal with. And so we have then the most opportunity to show forgiveness and the grace of the gospel within that relationship. Because we can't just stand aside. We can't just give up. Just as God doesn't give up on his people, we are not to give up on our spouse. So we must exercise forgiveness and we must ask for forgiveness. A marriage is to be a place of repentance and love. Marriage is critically important to us and to the Lord. Well, three brief applications as we conclude. First, this commandment comes to you today as a call to holiness. You can put this commandment into practice today. You can love your spouse more today than you did yesterday. You can be faithful. You can seek to encourage your spouse. But even Beyond that, you can encourage others who are married. 
especially those of us who have spent many, many years in marriage, and perhaps even our spouses have passed on, but we have wisdom that God has given to us. We can encourage the young marrieds among us to look to the Lord, to be faithful, to be true. Secondly, this commandment is a call to self-sacrifice. You've heard me say it before, I'm going to say it again. The definition of love, according to the scriptures, is self-sacrifice. Putting another before yourself. Putting another's needs before your own. That's what this commandment tells us. Finally, this commandment provides a picture of the hope of the gospel. Because if you've been married for any length of time, even if you're a child and you've seen your parents in marriage, you know that marriage is hard. That it's not always flowers and chocolates. That there are difficulties, strains. But God, by His grace, sustains His people. The reason why marriages succeed is not because of our effort, ultimately. It's because of the work of God in the hearts of His children. That's where we have hope. We have hope because a marriage doesn't involve two people. It really does involve three. And the third is our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at this commandment, I hope that it goes far beyond the basics for you. That you, as you look at this, you don't look at it and say, well, I got that box checked. Never committed adultery. I'm good. Let's go on to the next one, Pastor. But instead, you ask the Lord to give you grace. To honor Him in every aspect of your life. So that you might be a reflection of His glory in a world that sorely needs it. Let's pray.